hardly ever those logical things that prospects are thinking about. It usually has to do with how they feel. And for the longest time, I didn't really understand that because I didn't understand my own feelings. And I didn't understand what it was like having someone be impatient with me or not take the time to understand what I was feeling. I just never thought to do that with other people. And I kind of muted my emotions where I never got super excited about stuff. And then I never really got bummed out about stuff. So I just never even thought to check in with people and think about how is Andy feeling right now? Like, I hear what he's saying, but like, what's kind of going on under the hood? Like, what's he feeling? Like, what's his take on this? How does he feel about this? Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Jason Bay. Jason's a leading outbound sales coach and trainer for B2B sales reps and sales teams. And he's also chief prospecting officer at Blissful Prospecting. And no big surprise, in this conversation, Jason and I dive into the whole topic of prospecting. So we tackle the four big questions about prospecting that are being debated in various forums that you see. For instance, is prospecting even sales and whether that even matters? But you know, we do dive into the deeper topic about recognizing prospecting outbound as a specific profession all on its own and a specialty all on its own and what companies should be doing to develop career tracks that offer career growth to those specialists in prospecting. Then we dig into the inevitable evolution of the specialized sales roles we have today and how those will necessarily change to be more aligned with the buyer's journey as we go forward, which also leads to another discussion topic about how much prospecting should AEs be doing. So lots of great content in this episode. Jason really knows his stuff. So before we get to Jason, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Jason Bay, welcome to the show. It's good to be on, man. I'm excited for this. Oh, good. Good. That's always good when the guests are excited. I'm excited to talk to you. I was not excited to talk to you. What would you say? <laughs> let's reschedule. Let's cancel. Let's do something. I mean, I, I think there are times people aren't excited. I think sometimes people are a little uh, fearful of <laughs> what they're going to encounter, but generally people are excited to be here. Yeah. So um, everything good with you? We're recording this right after the new year. Everybody's self, safe, health, healthy, so on. Yeah, everything's good. We uh, For the first time, this is our, I think we're entering our fifth full year in business, and uh, this is the first year in 2020 we actually got to take some time off, man. So Nice. I, like I got to actually kind of take care of my mental health. Good. Um, so what did you do to take care of your mental health? Um, I've been really a couple things I've been really focused on from a business standpoint. It's like, how do I simplify what we're doing? Mm-hmm. You've been a consultant and done all of that stuff, right? And still right. companies and you can kind of get in the space where you try to do anything or everything that people want help with. And you, kind of or just feel all over the place. Right, right. Like yep. For, you know, a lot of last year towards the beginning. So just kind of simplifying that and and what we're focusing on. And and then the other thing is just uh dude, just practicing being more patient, man. You know, I, I go to been going to therapy for the last couple of years and mm-hmm. you know just been getting into uh just more I've meditated a lot, man, over my life. There was probably a, a two year stretch where I meditated 
you know, every weekday. This is like maybe 2013 to 2015. And I just kind of dropped it after that. And I feel like now at this point in my life, I'm kind of ready for like practicing actual mindfulness and understanding what it is. Cause I right. see the application with my dog, getting a dog helped a lot with patients, by the way. And then with my wife, because <laughs> <laughs> she's like, dude, you're, you're like so impatient, man. Which like, one I'm came first, the dog or kids. the wife? Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the, uh, you asked, sorry, it cut out a little bit. You asked what? Well, I said, uh, did you get your dog before you got married or you got, who preceded whom? We got the dog together. Okay, perfect. Yeah. And uh, he's, uh, his name's Pepe. He's a little toy poodle actually. And he's, we've had him for about two years now. And I was just so impatient with him training, you know, a puppy. Uh, yeah. When they poop all over the place and they pee and they're not quite potty trained yet. It's like, yeah, we're trying to train them to do something that is unnatural for them. <laughs> You know, so having a little bit of patience, knowing that, hey, he's not trying to intentionally piss me off. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so it's been it's been pretty good. And it's translated a lot into my personal life, too, and especially with sales, you know, in, in prospecting and all of that stuff. OK, well, let's let's dig into that. So how has this is an interesting thread? So how having a dog has helped you in sales? So tell us about that. Um, it's really weird. Yeah, because empathy has been kind of the huge buzzword of 2020, right? You know, through COVID and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, right? It's like people discovered empathy. It's like you realize you were always supposed to have empathy for your prospects. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and I would say one of the big things that I didn't really think a lot about is, you know, I, you know, growing up, my I have great parents, but my dad was pretty impatient with us, you know, growing up. Mm-hmm around just getting stuff done and having a good attitude and staying positive and all this stuff. And it really, you know, kind of desensitized me to like my own feelings and around being able to understand like what I'm feeling and being patient with myself. And that made me kind of impatient, you know, with other people. And it made me from a sales context, not really lean in and think about behind the scenes. Um, hey, when Andy is talking with me and, and we're kind of going through what's included and maybe you're comparing me to my competitors. What's really going on under the hood there emotionally? Like what's mm-hmm. handy feeling versus like just getting straight to logic, like comparing bullet point to bullet point, what the cost is, right. <laughs> you know, the deliverables, is our training better? Uh, are the topics recovering better? It's hardly ever those logical things that prospects are thinking about. It usually has to do with how they feel. And in, for the longest time, in my life and especially as an adult and, and honestly until maybe the last year or two, I didn't really understand that because I didn't understand my own feelings and I didn't understand what it was like having someone be impatient with me or not take the time to understand what I was feeling. Right. So I just never thought to do that with other people. And I kind of muted my emotions where I never got super excited about stuff. And then I never really got bummed out about stuff. So I just never even thought to check in with people and think about, how is Andy feeling right now? Like, I, I hear what he's saying, but like, what, what's kind of going on under the hood? Like, what, what's he feeling? Like, what's his take on this? How does he feel about this? Um, I just never really thought about that. And I've, sales is the only career I've, I've had. I'm 31. I've, I've sold since I was 18. I started mm-hmm. out door selling house painting services. And I've been very good at sales in my career. And especially as a business owner, but I never had that piece. And it makes me wonder looking back, I was like, well, God, I probably would have been, uh, either a lot better at it or at least felt closer connections with my prospects and my customers had I had this empathy piece. Yeah. Well, I think that, that, you know, the empathy thing is kind of tricky actually. So 
for two reasons. One is, is I think most people misunderstand <laughs> empathy and what it is. I think sellers tend to lapse into sympathy uh, yeah. when what the buyer really needs is, is empathy. And empathy is really, we tend, there's sort of these three types of empathy, if I remember correctly, is you know, emotional, compassionate, and cognitive. And that range from, you know, I can feel what you're feeling to I know that you're feeling these things, which is sort of the compassionate, the middle one, to the cognitive, which is I understand why you feel the way you do. And it's really that last one that's that's the one that sellers really don't get, right, is, is really understanding why a seller or why another person you have a conversation with, regardless of sales or not, feels the way they do. And it really requires you know, this level of connection and questioning to get to that level of understanding. But once you, once you have that understanding, and once the customer feels that you understand, there's tremendous value for them and really puts you in the, you know, the inside track in terms of dealing with them and perhaps winning and earning their business. Because, yeah, feeling understood, that's pretty powerful. Yeah, it's great. I like when you think about <laughs> it's something I look for in Zoom calls now when I'm doing sales uh, calls with you know potential clients is when I describe back to them what I heard, but I don't just like regurgitate word for word what they said. And it'd be like, hey, so what I heard is that through COVID, you essentially couldn't deliver these advertising services on these college campuses. And I'm using an example, like on these college campuses, like in these physical locations. And it sounded like you know, your business kind of shut down, you know, overnight and you were able to pivot and shift into more like digital stuff. I, I imagine there had to be like a huge sense of relief. And now you're thinking, well, how do we scale this new service that we haven't really sold before? Mm-hmm. You know, kind of like point uh, and, and, you know, paint the picture and read between the lines with them and actually think about like, what would that feel in like, what would it feel like if I was in that position and how is this affecting like this person's day-to-day job and like how they manage their team, you know? And I think you mentioned something so important there, the difference between like sympathy and empathy and that sort of stuff. And it's something I talk a lot about from a prospecting uh, perspective too, because like when you're making a cold call, for example, you don't really have all of this context of a conversation. A lot of times people are like, well, not interested or Mm -hmm. "Hey, we're using this. Mm -hmm. Right. And a lot of people get stuck in what I call uh, the objection rebuttal. I call it the rejection rebuttal infinity loop. So if you picture like a sideways, you know, infinity sure. line, right? For those listening that I didn't know what that looked like, a sideways fig, fig, figure eight lying on a side. Yeah. Yep. And I learned this through what's called the relationship dance in uh, therapy. So the relationship dance is essentially, you know, when you kind of get into this mode where you're accusing each other of stuff. And you don't actually talk about what the other person's feeling. So an example of that could be like my wife, Sarah, is like, Jason, uh, we've talked about this. You forgot to take out the trash. Like, what the hell, man? <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And I'm like thinking to myself, well, hey, I was going to take it out later anyways. Like, just give me a chance. Or, hey, I wasn't going to do it today because it doesn't need to get done until tomorrow. Versus thinking about, well, how is Sarah actually feeling? Well, she's probably feeling like, hey, I have to nag my husband to take out the trash and have to remind him. And if I... I'm kind of scared that like, if I don't do that, he's going to forget to do it. (laughs) So the way that you can kind of break that loop 
is really thinking about like if I would have responded, well, hey, I, you seem you know a little frustrated, and I think for good reason because I've forgotten to do this a couple times, so I could totally understand like you know why you're reminding me of where that frustration is is coming from, and you know I was actually going to take care of it tomorrow, and, and I'll make sure to get it done for you. That like kind of breaks that loop. Mm-hmm. An objection standpoint, it's kind of the same thing going on. Is if we can exercise. And it's really hard to do this because we don't have a lot of context. But when someone says not interested, for example, if we really think about, well, why is this person saying that and where are they probably coming from? Well, when I ask that question in you know, the training calls and stuff that I do, people say all kinds of stuff and they're usually right. That person's got something else going on. They're in the middle of something. Uh, they've been cold called multiple times during that day. Uh, and all of those experiences were bad. They thought you were someone else whatever it might be. So if we can kind of break that cycle of objection and then salesperson gives rebuttal and then the person's like, well, dude, like, like what the heck, you know, and they keep giving objections, rebuttal, it goes in this infinite loop. We can break that just by saying something like, well, Hey, Andy, you know, sounds like I might've caught you in the middle of something. And if that's the case, I could totally understand why you might not want to talk right now. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that has a pretty disarming effect on the prospect and it doesn't work every single time, but I'm just, I'm trying to like meet them where they're at and think about like why this person might say that and also validate the fact that it's totally okay if they don't want to talk to me right now. And then I can go in for my offer of what I would like next steps to be or asking for permission maybe to explain why I'm calling or whatever it might be. But I find that we do this backwards. We go in with like logical mode with like what we want. Or if the person says, I don't have time, we say something like, well, it'll only take me 30 seconds to tell you why I'm calling. (laughs) Or 27 seconds, as many companies say. Yeah, 27 uh, seconds if you're the connect and sell, you know, type. So how I see just to kind of, I know I'm kind of little ranting a little bit right now, but that's how I kind of see the empathy that I was kind of missing in Mm -hmm. the last couple of years, like how that fits into the prospecting element of things. And that's a very light level of empathy, but just like taking a second to think about where's this other person coming from? Like, why would they even say something like that to begin with? And, and, and let me try to talk to how I think they might be feeling. And just in doing that, even if I don't get that hundred percent correct, the person's at least going to be like, okay, this person gets it. Yeah. Well, and I think there's, there's multiple things sort of folded in there is, is there certainly that part as you talked about, which I think is really important but I think the other thing, too, when it comes to these these initial conversations that causes people to sort of put up the barriers is that, you know, we, to the same degree about empathy, is, is none of sellers lead with the problem, right? They lead with solutions. And and there's we've got this huge disconnect. And, and it goes even beyond the initial call. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. sort of happens throughout the entire sales cycle for way too many sellers is that they're trying to sell a solution rather than solve a problem. Yeah. And in many cases, the buyer really doesn't know what the problem is, right? You're calling somebody, if they really had awareness of the problem, they'd probably be in market looking for a solution. Uh, but assuming you're calling somebody that you haven't got some buyer intent signal and you're on there on your list to call and you're calling, you know, cold or warm, we've warmed on with an email, whatever. In the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of the cases, I believe, they really just don't even have a good handle on the idea of, A, they've got a problem, what the scope of that problem is. I agree 100%. And this is, you know, there's, there's all kinds of conflicting data about this. So you're, you're kind of a, 
more of a, a data person, I think, than I am. So you might know what the most recent studies say, but you know, Chet Holmes, like that whole mm-hmm. study they did uh, seven or eight years ago or whenever it was around, basically one to 3% of your market's going to be in buying mode. And then there's like, what, 20, 30, 35% or something like that of people that could be swayed one way or the other, but they aren't actively thinking about the problem or right, right. they might solve it. And then you got the rest of the folks that are not. I think with prospecting, I mean, of course, like the one to 3%, like you should absolutely get those. But it's the other 20, 30, 35% of people that if you kind of bring in a little bit of education around that problem that they might not know that they have, to your point, like those are the people that you can get to take a meeting that wouldn't normally come through an inbound channel. And to me, that's the power of outbound. That's the whole point of doing outbound is to capture the people that aren't really thinking about the problem right now. The other ones are just luck if you catch people that are thinking about it. Mm Because I know there's intent data and all that other stuff, but the intent data ain't that great in my experience. It'll tell you if a company is searching for something, but it doesn't really tell you much about the individuals you should talk about or what it what's going on internally. Yeah, it's just, it's a, just a data point. point, useful data point. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing with a lot of the things that exist from a technology standpoint these days is, is they're just indicators, right? I mean, it's not like they tell you a whole lot. I mean, yeah, some of the intent data can tell you what they've been searching for and so on, but it doesn't really tell you how serious they are about it. And you can infer things from frequency of, of you know, frequencies and so on on, on data. But yeah, you got to engage with people. Yeah. I want to dig into this problem thing with you, actually, because I'm, I'm curious on your take. Sure. So I agree that people don't lead with the problem enough. What I see, where I'm conflicted with this is if you're talking about a problem that the people that are in buying mode acknowledge that they have and they're educated on it and all that other stuff, that 20 to 30% of people that don't know that they have a problem or how they might fix it, when like leading with that kind of hair on fire problem, like the we fix these types of problems, I find that it doesn't always resonate really well with those people when like you can be overly problem centric. Well, but if you're leading with a statement that says we solve this type of problem, that's pitching your solution. Right. Mm -hmm. So if it's instead, you've got questions that you're asking reasonably based on, you know, the profile that they fit. Um, Then you have an opportunity to sort of say, yeah, we're not, you know, we've got expertise, we've got some experience, but you know, this is really something that we're going to learn about together. Right. Is this something that, you know, serves a problem you might have? And, and they may say, yeah. And I think even the, this is, I think, another mistake that sellers make is they assume that since a company has been in market and has been researching it, that they they understand the problem, right? I mean, if you look at the Gartner chart on the buyer journey that they laid out four jobs that buyers do, and I think there's actually five, not four, but um, yeah, the first one is problem identification. What they showed is based on their study, which I think is absolutely true based on my experience, is that you could move past that stage of identifying the problem. Maybe we understand the scope of the problem, what the impact of the problem of the problem is on the business. But then someone else could come in with a different perspective, another seller, and put a different spin on it. Or say, well, had you thought about this? Had you thought about what the impact would be if you did this instead of that? And then suddenly they're back at that stage again. So they didn't really finish identifying what the problem was. There is actually, it reopened again. 
And I think that's the opportunity for sellers when they come in is don't assume just because the buyer's been in market for a certain period of time that they really understand what they need, what the impact would be to solve the problem. Because if they had, they probably would have moved forward earlier. And I think yeah. that this is this is often you know, the key nugget about why opportunities end up with no decision is that then I really identified the problem and the customer is not satisfied, comfortable that putting this money and investing this money is going to get them where they want to go. Yeah. What's okay. So what's interesting is if we back that up into the, the very, very top of the sales funnel, basically, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, with, okay, I'm going to send a cold email to this person and start to sequence them and that sort of stuff. Um, Dude, what I find with a lot of the clients that I'm working with, they hire me because they're already doing well and they want to do better. So it's like mm-hmm. the problem. So I guess what I'm kind of hearing from you too is that if you kind of talk about, I, I like to uh, use the phrase like buried treasure is what one of our clients came up with. Mm-hmm. And they help businesses capture tax credits. So like engineering firms, software companies, people that don't know quite know how to capture these because they think that you need like a, you know, you need to be wearing a lab coat and carry a beaker right. around. Right. You know, that type of thing. But the the approach that's working really well for them is like kind of this like buried treasure kind of thing where, and they actually had some of their clients describe it like that. So they're using it in the prospecting language, but it's kind of like, hey, we see that you're investing a lot in innovation and doing a lot of really cool things. And what we oftentimes hear is that people are looking to like offset the costs of innovation because you have to keep investing in this thing to keep the innovation going. And one of the ways that people offset that is through through tax credits. Now, one of the challenges with that is that a lot of times people think they don't qualify, but oftentimes there's some opportunities there that your CPA or someone else could easily help you with. Are you open to hearing what some of those commonly missed items are? Like that type of approach works really, really well for them. It's like, it's not a hair on fire problem really that these companies are having. And it's almost like, a, hey, here's what I see you value and what you're spending money on and investing in. Are you open to ways that you might be able to do that even more? And are you open to hearing how other companies are doing that even more? And it's like this really weird, like, it doesn't really address the problem at all, unless I'm, unless you think otherwise, Andy. I'm kind of curious your take. Like, it doesn't. I'm not really leading with a problem. Well, you are, in my mind, right? Okay. Because you said they weren't harvesting their tax credits, right? Which gave them an opportunity to help fund ongoing development. Um, mm-hmm. That's a problem. It's an opportunity, but it is the problem, right? I mean, you either have an opportunity that you're fixing, you know, two halves of the same coin. Um, but yeah. Right. To me, that's, yeah, you're sort of identifying the problem, which is also an opportunity. I mean, all solving a problem should present an opportunity, right? Yeah. So, so I maybe too much into semantics, you know, with that then, because I think the misconception that at least in the work that we, that we're doing is, I think a lot of people think they need to have like a hair on fire problem uh, no, in order just, to get a prospect to take a meeting. And it's like, yeah, those people will take a meeting, but honestly, those aren't usually the best customers or clients in my experience. Where they need something right now. It's the people that can like not feel rushed through the sales process that I find make the best clients where they really, really want to do something with you and engagement with you versus like needing to do it like right now because it's like 911 emergency. <laughs> yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that that yeah, you know, look back at my own career as I spent 
sort of chunk of time selling products that didn't exist. Right. So I worked for a startup that we <laughs> were small. They've been doing R and D projects for the government. They wanted to make some uh, commercial business, and so we had a, an assortment of technologies. But as sort of the first person in on the the commercial side, um, my job was to go find people that wanted us to combine those technologies into a product for them. So they had to pay for the R and D and pay for the manufacturing of the product. So, yeah, I could sell anything as long as somebody met those requirements, being willing to pay for it. So there, it's like, yeah, how do you define a problem when people aren't even aware that there's a problem to, that exists, right? Um, so it was. Well, so, but that's sort of the the mode I think that sellers need to take, which is that you don't go in with an assumption that you know everybody's a nail. I'm a hammer and everybody's a nail, right? And we've got we're going to lead with the solution. It's not. We're find out what the real problem and opportunity are. Yeah. See, this is really interesting what you're talking about too, because I think the because I work with a lot of like smaller startups that are creating things that they have product market fit ish, <laughs> right? And they're kind of coming in and they're fixing something in a way that it just hasn't been fixed before. And I'll give you an example with a construction. This uh, company provides this like software that helps company that are um, doing like large construction projects, like commercial construction projects. Uh, oftentimes what happens is they're kind of subject to like the traffic and like the way that they, um, you know, block off certain roads and all that other mm -hmm. stuff. Sure. It can really like limit the way that they're able to actually be productive and limit their work hours. And for the longest time, these construction companies, and they still do, they just accept this fact. They don't think that there's any other way to do it. And this company kind of comes in with that angle. It's like, here's how most construction companies handle this. And, you know, they just kind of accept the fact that, you know, the government is basically going to dictate to them, like when they can work and how profitable their projects right. are. Right. And what we're helping construction companies do is kind of level the playing field and look at different ways that they could use, you know, some technology to like really optimize these routes so that they can be more profitable with these projects and really not feel controlled. You know, are you open to hearing about, you know, what that might look like? Are you open to hearing how companies like this, this, and that are, are kind of using this? Like that approach seems to work pretty well too, where it's like, Hey, there's a different way of like, you got to call out, here's how you're doing this right now. Likely from what I can see. And here's a different way of doing this that actually puts you more in control and can probably help you do more of what you want. That's something you're open to chatting about. Like that type of approach works pretty well too, in my experience. Yeah. And I think that, that, yeah, just a little tweak there that I think is, is effective more, a little more effective is to say, and you, you got to it at the end, but yeah, I try not to say, would you be open to hearing about the saying, would you be open to having a discussion about yeah, and because hearing, ugh, he's going to pitch me, right? Discussion is, yeah, we're gonna, I'm gonna learn about this, and we're gonna talk about what's possible. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that. Would you be open to a discussion about? I think those are words that, at least on calls I hear, is, is aren't used enough because it's. I think they're they're I don't say middle of the road, but they're just. They're sort of inviting. And this idea about, yeah, we're going to look at this together. Yeah. No, I like that. I'm going to steal that, Andy. <laughs> well, I stole um, it. You somebody, so you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you bring up a good point, though, and that, um, you know, I think that the words that you choose, 
you know, as a call to action, you know, at the end of an email or, you know, in your call after you've kind of talked about and set up the problem, it's extremely important, you know, because no one wants to hop on a demo. Hey, are you open to doing a demo, Andy, so I can waste 60 minutes of your time, <laughs> you know, like pitching you all these features and talking about the stuff that you don't like care about? Yeah. Well, there's there's one way to handle that, uh, which I did with a client, which was is just do the demo on that call. Yeah. But just do the first demo. Yeah, if you have an SDR, learn how to do a demo. And yeah. and do it. 10, 15 minutes, just an overview, right? Instead of pitching, we're just going to do an overview. You're always going to come back. You're going to do an in-depth demo before, maybe put in some other data, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. But, or do it after, excuse me. But but yeah, don't let them leave the phone. Do the do the demo then. Yeah, I, yeah. a client, right? we did that. I trained the, the team, the inside sales team, is, is they would ask the question, after you know the initial conversation, you know, it would be interesting seeing a demo. And yeah, people, yeah, sure, you know, they said fine. Yeah, here's the link. Let's do it now. <laughs> and you don't have to worry about people showing up for the demo, all these things. It's like boom, they were there. Well, Why I not? love that. Yeah. Why not just do it then? Uh, and it's again, it's just the intro. You're just giving them a flavor. Yeah, you know, you're gonna you're gonna do some simple, hey. You know, how would this look like if you did it type thing uh, to put them into the picture? But yeah, it's, it's, it's easy. Yeah. Right? We've gotten so specialized these days that, oh no, demos have to be AEs. It's like, get your ass there, do it. Got somebody on the phone, give them a demo. And it completely kills the business acumen of the SDR or BDR when they never learn how to do any of the other parts of like the actual selling, you know? Well, yeah. Um, I know that we've talked about this before and hundred percent in agreement with you. It's like prospecting and selling. Like these are two totally different skills, but one does help the other. Like selling skills definitely help on the prospecting side of things. And just along the topic of empathy, and this is the sales enablement podcast. I have some, some things that we've actually done with our clients that have been really helpful on that empathy piece uh-huh. that I wanted to share. Sure. Um, one of them was if your company's big enough, and uh, I imagine a lot of them that listen to this podcast are, and this is a really uh, two underrated um, sort of techniques, is a way that you can help your team sort of educate them on the prospect. Because a lot of what you hear is, oh, interview your customers. And you know what? I think that's pretty impractical for most SDRs to like interview a customer at a large SaaS company, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. to be able to do that. And then to know what to ask. And like, you know, it's kind of like, they don't really know what to get from it. So you can do these like fireside chats. I've seen pretty effective and you do it in two ways. So one, what your enablement team can do is a fireside chat internally with the persona that you guys are prospecting to. So if it's, you know, you sell an HR solution, for example, get your VP of HR to do a fireside chat and then have the sales leader or the enablement leader, like someone that really knows what they're doing, that can tease the right information out of them, facilitate a fireside chat with your team and get them to talk about what they hate in cold emails, what gets their attention, get them to have example emails of like that they said yes to, mm-hmm. that they wanted a meeting with. Um, so you can do that internally. And the other, this other one's a little bit more work to pull off, but it's, in my opinion, even more effective, is your best customers. Like make it a networking opportunity. Like if you sell to CIOs, set up a fireside chat with your CIO and a CIO that's a client and have them talk about this kind of stuff. 
have them right. talk about their day to day and their priorities and all this stuff. That way you can like, you can have this content forever. You can repurpose it yep. in all kinds of different ways, written video, audio. It could be part of your onboarding process. And it can also be something that you can take clips of to individual coaching meetings. You know, when you're doing coaching meetings with people and they have, and they're just getting stuck on particular objections or whatever it might be. It's like, you have these clips ready where you can be like, well, Hey, let's, let's dig in a little bit to like a CIO's top priorities. The way that you handled this didn't really seem to be in a way that would be in alignment with what their top priorities are. So like, how can we do this a little bit differently? Right. Like those two things I've, I've seen like really, really effective to like help kind of like build this empathy because one last part on empathy is I've been doing a lot of reading and my wife, especially because we're thinking about having kids here over the next year or two. Um, Good luck. We've been thinking a lot about how we, yeah, thank you. <laughs> how do you teach empathy uh, to a child? And one of the big things that a lot of the studies and the science shows that they, you know, children learn by observing. Mm -hmm. So they learn empathy by seeing you empathize with other people, not by you telling them to have empathy, right? And one of the things with these fireside chats that I think is really important as like a sales leader and just in your leadership is for your reps to see you have empathy with other people and to see you have empathy for the prospect and to like really dig in with your clients and like what it feels like to be a CIO or a CTO or whatever, you know, the personas are. So I think those two things, if you haven't done them, that's like the lowest hanging fruit, I think, to really take like the prospecting, especially to the next level. Well, I think another thing too, because empathy works both ways, is yep. when I look back on my career and the years I spent prospecting and early years when I was out <laughs> you know, in the field making dozens of cold calls a day and so on, is that that's when I learned about business. I was selling yeah. for the first few years, selling primarily to small, mid-sized business owners, uh, ironically, in the construction business for the most part. Some very large construction companies, uh, some smaller ones, some job shops. Um, but just having the opportunity to talk to business owners, entrepreneurs, CEOs, you know, all, oftentimes in the same person. And willing to be vulnerable about the fact that I didn't know things and I was there to learn was what's hugely important. Because I just made it a point of, if there's something I didn't understand, I would ask another question about it. Mm -hmm. And I would never assume that I understood, but I would always try to ask that, that extra question because I just I wanted to make sure I, I understood, right? Because I, I knew there was going to be another company I was going to sell to that might have similar problems and it and this is how I built my business acumen. And I think this is, to your point about you know, SDRs needing to have business acumen and sales acumen, this is how you do it. Is You'd be surprised how well customers respond to or prospects to, so help me for a second. I didn't understand that. So could you clarify that for me? What did you mean when you said X? Or you know, what's the impact on your business if that happens? It's just drive down and, and understand it. And people hugely appreciate that for the most part because it's like oh well, this person's they're trying to understand me again right they're being sincere in their their interest and they really want to understand and i find that valuable dude and no one likes to know it all <laughs> so having some vulnerability is like oh wow this person's actually leaning in and trying to understand and 
but I think the challenge, Andy, that's, is, that's really the key thing. Yeah. This is how you learn. This is yeah. a young person in sales, somebody newer to sales. This is how, the way you learn is by asking questions. Not about you're not going to learn. I don't want to be too hard on it, but you're not going to learn a lot from the company provided sales training. Uh, you learn how to sell from your customers in a good chunk, and so you have to ask questions about them, understand them. They like it. Yep. And the the challenge is <laughs> if SDRs and BDRs are not doing their own qualification or discovery or doing some light discovery before they tee it off to an AE, they never get to have these conversations. Yeah. Well, absolutely. That sucks. It's like it's it, they're missing out on – and I'm actually curious what you think kind of the future of that model is. But like that's the, that's the <laughs> big fallacy I see in the, in the appointment setting model, which has been around for a long time. It's like the SDR stuff is not, not new. It's, it's been like that for a a while in various different call center contexts and all that other stuff. But, um, like I, I, I find that the companies where the SDRs actually get to set up a discovery call with the uh, prospect and spend, you know, 15, 30 minutes doing a, you know, is there a fit here kind of thing and doing a little bit more discovery that gives them that business acumen. It gives them that space to ask the questions. You know, that you're talking about. And I think so many companies are so afraid of giving BDRs and SDRs that opportunity to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think it just crushes their prospecting, man, because like, it's hard for me when I do these trainings, I have a lot of empathy for the, for the SDRs and BDRs, because I'm like, how could you possibly know more to have a smarter conversation when you never get to talk to the prospects? I agree hundred percent. I mean, I think it's, it's, you are at this point to your, to your earlier question, where where people think like the way we do it is the way it has to be. <laughs> yeah. It's like the way it's always been done. Well, first of all, it wasn't the way it was always done. It was done differently before, and yeah. it's going to be done differently in the future. So, what that differently is, I don't know. I mean, some people would say, "Well, hey, we're going to automate the SDRs out of existence." Um, yeah, there might be some level of that 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 uh, certain industries, you know, more transactional things that that might happen. But yeah, that's not to say also that we won't see a return of full cycle reps. So I think so for sure. So it's it's nothing nothing is a given, right? I mean, people are infatuated with this model that we have, but the fact is that my belief, a strong belief, is that yeah, okay, from by and large, it doesn't really work very well. And, and yeah, at the end of the day, you'd expect if something was being the sort of accepted wisdom that, that, uh, the model would have demonstrated vast superiority to the ones that came before it. Mm-hmm. And there's no arguing that, that sort of this model is more productive at the top of the funnel, but there's absolutely no data that shows that in the heart of the sailing process, that it's any more effective than anything that's preceded it and arguably perhaps slightly less effective. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no one should treat the way that things are being sold today as, as set in concrete. I think there's a lot of room for innovation. Mm -hmm. What I find in the companies that I am working with right now that like the best cases, uh, are the ones where the AEs are doing their own prospecting. And I think that having the constraint on the prospecting time is actually a good thing. I think as an SDR and a BDR, you have so much time in your schedule to prospect. It's almost like too much. (laughs) 
mm-hmm. you know? Um, and when it, when an AE is like really cooking pipelines going well, they're closing well and all that other stuff. And they have like an hour a day that they can dedicate to prospecting. Those are the people that I see doing the best because they got an hour a day, which usually means that I need to queue up sequences and stuff like that the day before, get my emails out, get them personalized. And I spend mm-hmm. those hours, you know, cold calling. Right. Right. And I, to me, warm call, cold call, kind of the same sort of thing, calling people that weren't expecting me to call them um, and being smart as, as smart as you can about it. But that constraint I've seen work really well inside companies. Those are my favorite companies to train because, you know, like they're prospecting. These are the people that are really getting after it because they want to like really, really, really do well. You know, like they want a full pipeline and they're not relying on other people to fill it for them. Yeah, there's a couple issues there that I think are you're right on. Is is one is that I I believe AE should prospect, right? Whether it's an hour a day or whatever, but they should be they should take responsibility. They shouldn't rely exclusively on leads being transferred over from SDRs or from inbound. Um, and I agree. I mean, my experience been over the years has been that yeah, AEs to do that generally have a full pipeline, a little more consistent in their results. Absolutely. Um, I was losing my thought on the second thought. <laughs> Train of thought, but but yeah, I mean they they should be, and it's 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 high stand touch, right? I mean I think that that uh, there's something about the skill of initially connecting with someone that you have to do as an AE anyway, right? When you when somebody hands you a lead, you have it's not your company's first interaction with that person, but it's your first. It's the same thing. You create a good first impression. You've got to quickly establish some sort of connection, some sort of uh, start of rapport that you can build on. Uh, but yeah, if they have to do some prospecting, so we're going to amplify that a little bit, I think, in, in terms of their practice. But also, AEs a little more careful, I think, if they're a little more experienced about who it is they're actually going to reach out to to try to develop. And so I think they have a oftentimes a more finely tuned profile that they're reaching out to that they found is more productive for them. And I think that we need to, I think sort of the flip side of that is, is sales managers have to be comfortable giving AEs the autonomy to go do that. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> Preaching to the choir. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that this is, but I, I think this is whole issue of autonomy is, is something that, that certainly I'm going to talk more about this year, and it's it's a big a big issue because yeah, you know, you're talking about sort of future sales and this process we're using. To me, one of the the downsides of sort of this predictable revenue model, whatever we want to call it, the SDR AE model, specialized sales roles model, is that it it's so based on conformity and compliance and. And I think it sort of shows in the results. Yeah, some companies succeed using it, but they're not succeeding because of the model. They're succeeding for other reasons. Um, is that that um, people always sort of wonder, you know, how do you how do you develop something into a really successful or consistently good account executive? Is you need to give them room to experiment. You need to give them room to uh, operate the way they think would help them become the very best version of themselves. And I see this squashed a lot, where reps don't feel they have that, AEs don't feel they have that that freedom and that latitude to do that. And I think 
I think it's 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 a big issue for me. And I see it in organizations, and I see it why people churn and go to other opportunities. Um, is yeah, they think there's something more they could do, but they're not given the freedom to do it. Yeah. Well, another, I agree with you 100. percent And it doesn't have to be all or nothing either. That's the. I think people in these sales leadership roles, it's they think pretty binary. It's like zero one. It's like either they have full autonomy, do what they want, or they have no autonomy. And there's an in between. Why don't you just start with uh, one? Uh, maybe 10% of the people that this SDR or BDR reaches out to on a weekly basis. So if they reach out to 100, 10 of those people, they get to basically do any way that they want. Mm-hmm. They get to do a different sequence. They get to try a different message. And this is how you actually like enable people to, um, like you enable resourcefulness. I, I think that like when we rob people of their autonomy, we are taking away the fact that humans are incredibly like we're resourceful salespeople, especially are incredibly resourceful and you don't allow that resourcefulness to kick in when people are being dictated exactly what they need to do. So start with 10% say, Hey, 10 of the people out of a hundred, you get to reach out to this week. Maybe let's look at the stuff together before you send it out, but we're going to give you some freedom to throw a gif into your email if you want to, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or, or try a different cold call opener and, and, and maybe, Try a different value prop when you talk about the company or lead with a different problem that you have a hunch of that would work better. And then you create this environment where people are like testing things and they're not afraid to like try new things because, I mean, that's where innovation comes from in prospecting and selling, right? It's like people trying new things and figuring out, oh, this, this worked really well. The best ideas that I have and share with our clients are usually stuff that came from work with other clients, you know, them taking a framework and just running with it. Versus yeah. a script, right? And this, I mean, this is a whole another conversation to have about why are things so rigid? Why are things so compl- you know sort of compliance oriented? Mm-hmm. You know, compliance to a process, and it it really starts at the management level. <laughs> is that what they are prizing above everything else? Is sort of predictability, and so they operate sort of from a position of fear, right? I know this sort of works to this level. You know, this level is not really very good in the absolute sense. I mean, you look at close rates for most SaaS companies off there, most highly, highly qualified opportunities, not very good in my mind at all. But it, if they put enough stuff into the top of the funnel, they get hit their numbers. So, you know, we sort of reduced it down to, where, hey, we're playing the odds. And that works for us. So why would we change that? Um, because, you know, if anybody changes it, tweaks it, and suddenly they don't, hit their goals, then somebody pays the price. And we see that, right? Because we see you know high turnover rates among sales managers and so on. So yeah, if you only have, if you think going into a job as a VP of sales or a CSO or CRO or whatever, that your tenure is going to be 18 months, you're not going to lean toward innovating your sales processes or giving people flexibility because you've basically got one and a half business cycles to make it happen. Oh man. Yeah, we could talk for another hour about that, dude. I have issues with that too. <laughs> well, we'll bring it back. We'll do it. <laughs> All right. Jason, appreciate you joining us today. It's been fantastic. Um, people want to learn more about blissful prospecting. How can they do that? Yeah, so we do uh, a couple things. Um, one, we kind of talked a lot about empathy and that sort of stuff today, and we did a little bit of, you know, kind of objections like that sort of stuff. If you're looking for like a messaging framework that's a little bit more structured for 
how does this equate to like what I would put in a cold email, for example? We came up with a framework called the reply method. And you can mm-hmm. check that out at our website. It's blissfulprospecting.com. Click on reply method. It's a full page ungated guide. There's a cheat sheet if you do want to download it. Um, but there's a full page guide there that's pretty cool. Relevant, empathy, personalization, laser focused, you oriented. Exactly. Just so people know what reply is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of all the critical parts of a good prospecting message there. And then the other two things are, you know, we run prospecting boot camps as well. So if you're looking for a little bit more support as an individual or your sales team and you know, want help kind of implementing a good process, or maybe your team struggles with call reluctance or low response rates, whatever it might be, um, hit me up there. We might be able to help as well. Perfect. All right. Well, Jason, a pleasure as always, and we'll do it again shortly. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, we're so grateful for your support of this program. And I want to thank my guest, Jason Bay, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, we'd appreciate it. And you can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thanks for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.